0: You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where
1: we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Thanks so much for joining us again. I'm your host, Amelia, and today we have a super cool guest on the show. We have Jai Lai, who is an astronomy researcher at Swinburne University. Welcome to the show, Jai Lai.
0: Hello, Amelia. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks so much for coming. And we're going to start with a nice, easy question. What is your job?
0: My job is astronomy research. So I study galaxies and stars and explosions and try and figure out what's going on with them. That sounds like a pretty cool job. Job. Pretty fun.
1: <laughs> I'm guessing you might enjoy it a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you do that work?
0: Mm-hmm. Part of it is similar to what everybody might imagine an astronomer does. So we do use telescopes and I take use these telescopes and take pictures of galaxies and stars and the universe. But telescopes, there's actually many different types. So they're the ones that most people would be familiar with that produce pictures and the pictures just look a lot clearer than what you might see in the night sky. But there are all sorts of different telescopes too. Like there are radio telescopes where the signal that comes out is an electrical signal and you don't get a picture until you use really complicated software on it. Um, There's also gamma ray telescopes and uh, UV telescopes and all sorts of different ones that produce different types of data. And then I study these, uh, these data that's collected with the different telescopes to figure out what's going on in the universe.
1: Is there a specific type of telescope that you focus on? Or do you like focus on a specific thing in space and then use all the different telescopes?
0: Yeah, the second one. And it's something that I've been trying to work towards in my career actually. Traditionally maybe 20 years ago uh, most people just focus on one type of telescope so perhaps ones that just see visible light. Some of you might have heard about this thing called the electromagnetic spectrum that's just a fancy way of saying all the different types of light from radio to light that we see with our eyes, all the way to UV, which can give us cancer, um, to x-rays that we use to image our bones, and gamma rays, which is given out by nuclear activity. Um, So yeah, about 20, 10 years ago, even, people traditionally focused on one type of uh, wavelength, and hence one type of telescope. But these days, more and more people are focusing on the second option that you said, Amelia, which is study one type of phenomena like galaxies or explosions but use all the different wavelengths and this is actually really really cool because imagine you go to a doctor and they're like i can only give you an ultrasound but really you need an ultrasound and an mri and an x-ray to figure out what's wrong with you Um, so astronomers are catching up
1: that's so cool so now instead of like being an expert at the technology you're sort of able to focus more on the astronomy and then use whatever tools are available To really understand that thing that you're interested in.
0: Exactly. And honestly, even before one, um, back in the days when people kind of focused on one type of telescope and one type of wavelength they, they had to it's not like they can solve the puzzle with just one type of telescope they just kind of worked in this one domain and the other people worked in this other domain with other telescopes and then people trying to figure it out together but now everyone's kind of crossing borders and uh, doing doing all the different telescope types as well which i think is a much better way and faster way to get to answers
1: Yeah, it kind of, when you start to flip that around, it does actually make a bit more sense. What is the thing that you're interested in using all these different telescopes to find out more about?
0: Uh, I'm interested in two main areas. So in my PhD, I actually worked on galaxies. And the big question I wanted to ask and I try to figure out is how galaxies are formed. You might have heard about this thing called the Big Bang. At least people would have heard about it in the tv show i really hope so and so at the at about 13 or 14 billion years ago uh we know for sure now that the universe looked very 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 different to what we look like today and in fact it wasn't there wasn't empty space everywhere the whole universe was filled with really really hot material so hot that it's not just you know how there's solid liquid and gas or well, if you get even hotter than gas, there's this thing called plasma, where even the electrons are ripped off the atoms themselves. And it's a sea of electrons and protons and other, uh, other things like that. That sounds violent. Yeah, it's, it was really intense. And so at that time, there were no galaxies because everything was just a soup, basically. And from there until now, 13 or 14 billion years later, we see that universe is highly structured with galaxies and um, clusters of galaxies and and great voids where there's not much stuff at all. And so a central question that I'm interested in is understanding how that came about and why there are so many different types of galaxies with different amounts of uh, materials and stars and something called dark matter that a lot of people might have heard about before as well. So that's like one area that i'm interested in um, mainly because i worked on it in my phd and then there's a second area which i started working on about a year ago which is the world of transient astronomy or time domain astronomy and it's all about how things change so these galaxies that i talked about at first they don't change in our lifetime they just look the same because they change over millions and billions of years but these, um, these, these things I'm starting to study now, they're like explosions that can happen. Something can be like not there in the sky. You see there's this empty spot in the sky. There's nothing there. And then suddenly the next day, there's a bright star-like thing there. And then it fades over weeks, um, things like that. But increasingly, we're finding that not only do things fade over days and weeks, there are things that kind of go flash over an hour and disappear or minute or second or even less than a second. There's, there's a huge booming field where we're trying to understand what we'll find all of them, first of all, and then figure out what they are.
1: Because traditionally, I've always thought of astronomy as being sort of, I guess, leisurely, like things are just this great cosmic dance and it's everything sort of wandering around the universe quite sort of calmly. That doesn't sound like it's particularly chilled out.
0: Yeah, actually, this is why this area of research is so cool, because for the last few thousand years, we've been looking up at the sky and, you know, it doesn't change from night to night you got the same constellations every night you, you you go out the moon does kind of get brighter uh, become round and then you can get crescents and then disappear and then become round again and you got planets that kind of move relative to the constellations but other than that the sky looks the same every single night it's so constant that people use it to navigate the oceans, right? But we're finding this is all a facade. There's actually crazy stuff going on.
1: <laughs> okay, I think we might need to come back to that because I'd like to hear some more about the crazy stuff. Just Just quickly for people who might be interested in what it is you actually do day to day, what would a standard, if there is such a thing, standard day at work look like for you?
0: I think the most standard kind of day is I uh, get up and then I go to the office, sit down on my computer and start working. Uh, but now that we're all working from home, most, uh, at least a lot of us, I walk to my computer at home, sit down and start working. Day to day on my computer, I would build software, look at images of stars and galaxies, um, look at other types of data taken with other types of telescopes. Basically, try and figure out what's going on. It's like kind of like solving a puzzle, but you're solving lots and lots of puzzles. And some of these puzzles take years to solve. (laughs) It's really fun. Other than sitting on my computer and working on this data and building software, uh, throughout the week, there's usually research talks where um, other people talk about their research and I can learn and ask questions and see if it helps with my work. There's socializing with other researchers, which is always really fun. And there's research meetings for people in that work on similar research areas to me or are in my research group. That's kind of a typical day. But we also get atypical days as well, if that's something you think the listeners would be interested in.
1: Definitely. I think it's good to hear about the standard, like sit at your computer, write emails, write probably grant applications, that sort of stuff. But it's also good to hear about like the anomalous days.
0: Yeah. And I think the anomalous days, not going to lie, I like writing the software and my typical day as well, solving puzzles and all of that. But the atypical and, and anomalous days are super, super cool. So some examples are uh, we could travel to go to a conference where we meet loads of people working on the same research area. We are super excited about the results. We share our results. Then there's the atypical days where we use a telescope to observe. And that can happen at strange hours of the night, depending on where the telescope is. So if you have a telescope that needs to take pictures of the night sky in Hawaii, then you need to be awake um, during Hawaii nighttime to operate the telescope and take data. So those those kinds of atypical things are super, super fun.
1: Just a quick question. Are you focusing on a specific area of space or like can it just, is it everywhere or are you pointed in like a specific direction?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really, really good question and actually really tricky to answer depending on what you're trying to study. If you're studying... Um, galaxies or something, you might be um, interested in mapping out galaxies within a certain distance. And so, galaxies within a certain distance can be all around, but you, you you kind of because of other people having observed galaxies before, you know where they are, and so you know where to point. But when it comes to the study of time domain astronomy, looking at explosions and bursts that appear and disappear you don't really know where to where to look. The ideal thing would be to look everywhere all the time with every telescope. But of course, we don't have those kinds of resources. Even if we point every single telescope at the sky at the, all the time, we still don't cover the whole entire sky all the time. Something that we're interested in, in studying, which I'm interested in studying, are explosions that happen outside of our galaxy. Then you want to point in strategic areas of the sky where there are not a lot of stars in our galaxy blocking the view of things outside of our galaxy. Um, and then we just kind of look at that area and and wait for things to explode.
1: So you mentioned earlier when we were talking about your sort of like the the fun. I guess, the the extra fun days at work. There's going to conferences and then using the telescopes to look at things. Is that all stuff you're able to do remotely now as well? Like it sounds like you don't actually need to be in Hawaii to be controlling this telescope.
0: Yeah, a lot of um, telescope facilities have basically created software or used software to allow people to remotely observe from home. And so Actually, last week and the week before, I was observing with a bunch of different telescopes around the world, and we meet along with my group, research group, we were all doing that from our homes. And so this is something that's actually quite recent. And there are telescopes where this is not possible, and so they can't be used if people can't go there in person. And because of COVID-19, actually, lots of telescopes are not maintained properly, and so they're not even online this year.
1: Oh, that's a shame. I'm stoked that some of them are working, but...
0: Yep. Yeah, it, it is a shame. One of the main ones we were hoping to use last week uh, is wasn't online yet. And this one is in Chile, uh, in South America. but And so we couldn't use it. And leading up to this observing period, we had to do a lot of work to try and figure out what other teles- telescopes we can use.
1: You also mentioned earlier that you are making the software... Can you tell us a little bit about the software
0: that you're using or creating? Mm-hmm. The software that we create has to be specific for the type of data, and in other words, like the which telescopes data that we're analysing. Um, for example, let's the one that's probably most familiar to people are basically pictures taken with visible wavelength telescopes, and for those ones, all the all the data are pictures, and so my software would read in the picture pixel by pixel and do things like figure out where all the stars and where all the galaxies are figure out how bright they are and then we might have many many exposures taken maybe every minute let's say Uh, and so then there would be software to monitor the brightness of these stars and galaxies over time so every minute how does it change Um, so it does things like that and allows us to identify things that are changing once we find things that are changing, then there's even more software to figure out how is it changing? Is it changing brightness, color? Um, and then we kind of bring in all the other wavelength data as well.
1: That's so cool. I don't think I'd realized how techie astronomy had gotten.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is really, really cool. Um, I can't imagine doing this without software because back in the days when there were, people had data on photographic plates, uh, you just, you, you have to... Go in a room, look at this physical picture, photo, and then figure out how bright things are one by one without software being able to automatically get at all the stars. That sounds like so much work. I don't understand how people could have done their PhDs in three years. I do my PhD. I did my PhD in five years in North America. That's how long they take. But it'd take you a whole year just to look at all your data, whereas it takes me two weeks after I write the software to run it. It might take like a few months to write the software, but, you know, once it's written, you're done. I I don't understand how people used to do it.
1: Well, and how they used to do it accurately as well. Like when you've got a human analysing empirical data, there's so many ways it can go wrong. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Some might argue that at least if a human is doing it, you, you don't get things very precise, but at least you don't get things completely wrong, like not accurate. Accuracy is, you know, how close... You get to the answer, whereas precision is how good your, how fine your ruler is when you measure it. So as a human, your your ruler can only be so fine because you know you have to hold a physical ruler. But at least your accuracy is pretty right because if you shifted the ruler, a human would know. But with software, a lot of things can accidentally go wrong. These are called bugs in the software. Uh, or virus, not virus, a bug in the software, and you just don't realize that it's measuring the wrong thing. So you can get a very precise answer of the wrong thing easily.
1: Yeah, you need to do some pretty hardcore quality control. Program hasn't just gone off and it's, it's doing really, really well at the thing you told it to do, but you told it to do slightly the wrong thing.
0: Yep, exactly that happens a
1: lot. What are some of the skills that you need to be able to do your job? It sounds like it's, there's quite a few things going on there.
0: Mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of coding skills that you would need. Uh, You need a little bit of math skills, but a lot less than what people might imagine. For example, I don't, the last time I had to do an integration was a couple of years ago. And mostly I used a lot of statistics and really simple maths. But I think one thing that people don't realize as a scientist is it's it's not just technical skills that you need to be a scientist. You also need skills um, like writing uh, and explaining your science so that you can properly exchange ideas and grow your ideas and come up with new ideas by talking with other people. You also need to be able to manage your own time, so time management, project management. Other skills are being able to sit down and focus on something yeah basically sit down and focus on a problem and take a bite of it and never let go spontaneously asking questions because you just want to figure things out also teamwork so a lot of things that are skills in every job basically that involves problem solving and then you add coding and a little bit of maths into it as well
1: what language are you coding in
0: Uh, i mostly do python it's free and it's just so nice now you can code in a very basic terminal environment, but there's something called a Jupyter notebook, um, which allows you to visually see your, what the results of what you're coding at the same time as you're coding. And so, yeah, a lot of people are using Python these days.
1: Yeah, that's good to hear. It's a very, it's a, quite a friendly language, and it's super powerful as well.
0: Yeah, and it's free. <laughs> it's open source.
1: Yeah, we're big fans of open source.
0: Do you use Python?
1: No, I'd like to learn Python. At the moment, I just use JavaScript because it's like a front-end language, but eventually I want to get back more into image analysis, that sort of stuff, and uh, a bit of machine learning.
0: Oh, cool. Nice.
1: Do you guys use any artificial intelligence or machine learning? Like, it sounds like it would be a useful use case.
0: Yeah, it's starting to come into astronomy over the last five or 10 years more and more. Uh, nowadays you can look on the list of papers that are published every day and there's usually a few machine learning ones. In my work, in my research group, there's a PhD student that I'm supervising who his thesis is on using machine learning to try and find the things that explode in the sky. So you remember how I said like you take a picture and then you find where all the stars are with software and then you figure out if they're changing their brightness over time. To do that Basically, the software picks up a whole lot of candidates of sources that might be changing their brightness over time. But a lot of it are spurious or there's something wrong with the data. And so this PhD student is using machine learning to eliminate the things that are bogus candidates and uh, find ones that are actually things that are changing. So that's what we're doing in, in our research group. And yeah, machine learning is super cool. I didn't know any machine learning before... Two years ago, actually, when I graduated my PhD, I had a similar thought to you. I thought, yeah, machine learning, super useful. How do I learn it? <laughs> and then I applied for this thing called a Schmidt Science Fellows program. It allowed me to take a year to do research in whatever area I want, wherever I want And so I took that and decided to go to the UK and did research on fetal ultrasound using machine learning. So I learned a whole bunch of machine learning techniques that's applied to images, and now I'm applying it to astronomy.
1: That sounds like a completely different direction to do some research in.
0: Yeah, super different in in content, but at least it still involves images, which is the commonality. That's so cool.
1: One of the things that I'm liking about the sound Of this astronomy research is it sounds like there's a whole lot of open access to the data and that there's a lot of sharing internationally is that sort of like is that something that you experience is like people aren't kind of hoarding their data and not sharing it
0: yeah so one really really cool thing about astronomy is that we are forced to be super collaborative in order to push the frontiers of our science and that's because in order to make more and more discoveries we need to build more and more advanced telescopes that allow us to see fainter and see things in better time resolution and all of that. In order to do that, they get more and more expensive. And so these days, the best and most um, cutting edge telescopes cannot be built um, by one person, not only just by like one person, you can't even, one university, one country isn't even enough. So the collaborations are international, even in terms of funding. And written into these uh, collaboration understandings is that any data that's taken has a prior proprietary period. And sometimes it could be six months, a year, or two years. But after that, it's released to the public, public and everybody has access to it. And that's because a lot of the money is government money and public money um, in all the different countries. So that's why it's a requirement for almost all telescopes now.
1: That is so cool.
0: Yeah, it is pretty cool. So if you do want to, you know, start in astronomy, you just need an astronomer to point you to some data and you can start exploring.
1: And as we've said already, Python's free. There's a whole lot of tutorials online. You can totally teach yourself to do this.
0: Exactly. And not only Python tutorials, but tutorials on using Python for astronomy.
1: That's cool. We need to find one of them for the show notes because...
0: Yeah, I can give you a few links. That'd be awesome.
1: How have you ended up in this job now? What is your path like from high school to, to
0: now? Mm-hmm. Uh, in high school, I was like one of those kids that was interested in all sorts of random things. Um, before year 10, I wanted to be a politician, artist, a recluse in some Chinese mountains studying martial arts, all sorts of things. <laughs> but in year 10, uh, when we had to pick subjects for year 11, I realized that science is split into these different disciplines there's in in high school it was split into biology chemistry and physics i love physics i i really like science i like all the sciences but i didn't realize there was like one area of science that was just physics which was all my favorite parts of science really really fun because unlike biology and chemistry there's not like a lot of stuff to memorize and it's about the physical world, which you can have a lot of intuition about and come up with ideas yourself and like push something off the table when you're doing an experiment. It's, it's, it's It was really, really cool. And I also, um, at that point, I also understood that the study of fundamental particles like electrons and quarks and all of that, they uh, that is physics. And these fundamental particles make up everything in the whole entire world. So as a kid, I like asking, I liked asking why, and eventually when you ask why, 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 it gets to the fundamental of where all of this fundamental particle stuff comes around. And so I thought, all right, physics it is. And since year 10, it's been pretty, I've been pretty focused on doing physics research and eventually it led me to astronomy. At the end of undergrad, I thought, yep, I want to do research, but what area of physics research do I want to do? I decided to go with astronomy um, because you get to, through astronomy, you can study these fundamental particles because they make up the universe and they're critical in like the beginning of the universe as well as um, how stars and planets and galaxies work. But you're also studying the biggest thing that exists, which is the whole entire universe. And I've been kind of, doing
1: this ever since so you get to understand this giant thing by also understanding these teeny teeny tiny little things yeah,
0: exactly which is like now everything but skipping over some details in the middle <laughs>
1: were there any events through like between maybe at a high school or university which sort of really uh I guess inspired you to stick with science and really kind of boosted your enthusiasm?
0: Probably people that I did research projects with. I'm generally pretty confident in myself in in the sense that, you know, if I'm interested in something, I'll try it. If I'm not good, oh, well, I'll move on to the next thing. But science can be pretty challenging. And in when I was in undergrad, I did a research project and it was really hard for me at the time I was scared of computers imagine someone trying to be an astronomer who was scared of computers
1: I'm glad you got over that yeah
0: it took a while but I got there now I love computers but in my undergrad I did a research project uh, with someone called Andrew Hopkins at the University of Sydney he was really encouraging to me and he you know he, he made me feel like I could be a good researcher and when I asked questions about the work I was doing, Um, he encouraged them. And uh, so therefore, in, in that area of research, I was actually able to veer in a direction which resulted from some questions I was asking. And that was really, really fun. Even though I couldn't do a lot of stuff and things were confusing and I got lost and frustrated it was really fun and he he helped me feel like no that's fine that's just part of what science is and I think it's really really important for any person going into research to get mentors like that because it's hard and most of the time you don't know what you're doing and having encouragement is super important.
1: Yeah and having someone to help you learn how to navigate when you don't know what you're doing and when you you are barking up the wrong tree or you're completely lost how to navigate back onto a path where you're headed in the right direction again.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's kind of hard to do by yourself if you don't know. Yeah. How did you choose your PhD topic?
0: For for me, in I went to the University of Toronto and they actually have a program where you don't have to pick your PhD topic until the second year you are in your PhD. And in the first year and a half you do two different projects and you also take some courses. And so I, by by the time I was in my second year, I kind of knew what a lot of the different professors are working on and the projects they have available. I made sure I talked to everybody about their project, um, even if I was remotely interested in it. And then the topic I picked uh, was with this, my advisor called Bob Abraham, and he just made it sound so cool (laughs) Uh, he explained to me that this project is pretty risky Uh, it involved building this telescope to try and see the faintest galaxies and parts of galaxies and the faintest things in the universe but he didn't know if it was going to work but if it did work then we'll see the universe in a way that we have never seen before and i was like wow this is so cool and he also explained to me his plan and why he thinks it worked and he doesn't know if it will but he thinks it will. And he explained it to me. I thought that actually sounds very reasonable. Let's give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? Um, I just have to try a different project if it doesn't work out. Uh, And that's how I picked my project. Something risky and potentially very, very, very exciting.
1: So high risk, but potentially really high reward. Exactly. That's really cool. What are the things that are really cool about your job and your work? Like what helps you get up in the morning, especially when you're working from home and it can be a bit easy to sort of get distracted what helps keep you engaged
0: there's two main things and I think at least for me I need both of these one is kind of that idealistic thing that pulls you and two is that it's actually it actually has to be enjoyable for me so it is enjoyable first of all but in terms of that idealistic reason it's because you're literally discovering things that have never been discovered before. And that, that fundamentally is really cool. You get to contribute to this bank of knowledge about the universe and the whole world. And you don't know what it's going to be. But if you keep going, you'll find it.
1: And you'll also be seeing things, like even if they're not necessarily in the visual spectrum, you're still seeing things that people have never seen before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Every time an explosion goes off, uh, it's, it's you know, you're the first person that sees it. And actually no one else will get to see it again because it's gone off and disappeared.
1: <laughs> Except hopefully you had pressed record or whatever. The-
0: yeah, and hopefully the skies are clear and there isn't some random mobile phone ruining the radio data, da-da-da, et cetera.
1: What are the bits about your job that you actually just like enjoy day to day?
0: I used to hate coding because I was scared of computers and I always felt like it was going to, like, I didn't know what it was doing. I didn't understand it. But now that I have more confidence and experience in programming, that is actually something I really, really, really enjoy. It's a way of organizing your data and getting our information. And yeah, it's it just feels really good. It brings me a lot of joy, like hugging a kitten, but then you get to organize your data and get information from it. <laughs> How did you
1: get over your fear of the computers?
0: Probably twofold again. One is you just keep doing it even if you're like I'm making mistakes I don't know if this is right and you just keep doing it doing it testing it and finding that yeah it is it is fun what you're doing is fine the way to check is to go back to the old days you know how when we were earlier we talked about photographic plates well we don't have photographic plates but we have the images themselves and By opening up a picture, you can zoom in and see the pixels themselves. And so you can check if your program is doing what you want it to do with these pixels by literally adding it up and doing the math yourself, pixel by pixel. So there's a lot of that. But the second part is, again, having people around me to explain to me um, how programs work, how to install things, and show me new ways of using programming languages that are better. Yeah, so experimentation, doing it, and having people around you to help.
1: And just demystify it, because like, if you're working in the console or something for the first time, it's just like, where where are all these things coming from, and where does the program go to, and
0: yeah, exactly. Demystifying is a huge part. And the demystifying part, I got a lot of help from, from friends who are doing their PhDs at the same time. In particular, um, one of my friends who started his PhD at the same time, uh, he's a total wizard computers and he's been playing with computers forever. And so he really helped dismystify things for me.
1: So good to hear. It really sounds like collaboration is a massive positive in your field.
0: Yeah, 100%. This reminds me of a story. Um, When I was picking what to do for undergrad, I specifically remember my dad telling me, you shouldn't do science and engineering. You like talking to people. You're not going to enjoy sitting in a room by yourself doing science and engineering. And I thought, Wow, dad, I'm going to ignore what you say, because I like solving problems and asking questions. But now that I'm in the field, actually, there is loads of talking to people around you day to day, but also conferences while you're observing, you talk to the people at the telescope, etc. And so I'm getting uh, my I'm getting enough talking to people at the same time as playing around with data and solving puzzles.
1: You're getting your social fix as well. Definitely. I think like that's coming out in all the interviews is that science, tech, all that sort of thing. It's not just like you hiding in a room, like being an amazing genius all by yourself. It's really collaboration is where the genius is.
0: Yeah. If I can, I don't know, high five you 10,000 times on that, I would. I'll take that. Thank you.
1: (laughs) All right. (laughs) What's some advice you'd give a young person, maybe they're at school and they listen to this and they're like, the stars are so cool. And they'd like to turn that interest into a career like you have. What is some advice you'd like to give them?
0: Mm -hmm. First of all, if that's good that it starts with, oh, this sounds cool, because I think there are loads of jobs around the world. And you don't have to like 100% love your job all the time, but hopefully at least it starts from a place of that actually sounds pretty cool. I would advise you to try. Uh, and see what this research career is like so listening to this podcast is a great idea to see you know how people work and what they do day to day you can do work experience if you're still in high school you can choose to do work experience at a research institution for example um, at where I work at the University of Swinburne just last week there were 20 work experience students that joined us virtually wow yeah and they get to um, talk to researchers try a little project as well and talk to each other, get some advice. So that that's something you definitely should do. Even if you've already done your work experience, you can always contact a university or a research uh, institute for like CSRO to see if you can go outside of the work experience program. Just you know, go during the holidays for a week and shadow researchers. Another really, really good thing to try, say if you're an undergrad, is try a research project. A lot of I have had a lot of friends who really enjoy asking questions, finding answers, and talking about about these questions and answers. But they tried the tried doing the research itself, and they didn't find joy in the coding part of it, um, like like I do. And some people were like, "Okay, that's okay. I'll still code because it's just so fun to find answers." Or other people are like, "Actually, I really enjoy coding." Or if you like just hate it so much, you're not gonna enjoy this career. I guess to summarise, my advice is to give it a go and see if you really like it.
1: And give it a go early as well. You can do this kind of stuff at high school. You don't have to wait till uni.
0: Yeah, actually, we have some primary school students that join us on some of our observing runs and help us look through data. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know if you're interested no matter how old you are if you're three and you understand we'll take you to come and have a look if you're 70 or 80 or 100 that's cool too I was actually about to ask
1: that, like if you're a mature age person and let's say you've already got a career in something else, is there a way that they can get involved and help out
0: outside of hours? So in terms of if you have a career and you kind of want to do this on the weekends or at night times, then there is definitely, definitely ways you can help. For example... There's something called Galaxy Zoo. It's a website or a project. And if you just search Galaxy Zoo on Google, you should be able to find it. And it's where astronomers, but also biologists and other scientists put their data onto the internet and you help them look through thousands of examples of their data and classify them or get information from them. The One of the first examples is, uh, that's why it's called Galaxy Zoo. One of the first examples is that astronomers put up hundreds and thousands of pictures of galaxies and asked citizens to or the general public to classify them as spirals or elliptical galaxies and basically say what type of galaxy it is it's very hard for a computer to automatically do this these days you can use machine learning but even with machine learning you need a set of labeled examples to begin with this is called citizen science and so that's how you can help even if you don't change your career
1: That's cool. And we'll link to Galaxy Zoo in the show notes as well. What about if someone was interested in switching up
0: their career? They've
1: they've done something else previously and now they're really interested in becoming an astronomer.
0: One of the PhD students in my research group is actually a mature student. Uh, he's been an engineer his whole life and now he's doing his PhD. And so that's one way to do it. Um, you can, If you already have a technical background, you can apply to do a PhD. Uh, and then from there onwards, you can apply for research jobs and basically do all the things that I described today another one of my friends actually uh, she's a dentist and she's interested in changing fields to do physics research Uh, we went to high school together and she loved physics we were like physics olympiad buddies when when we were in high school and so she wants to get back into it even though right now she's a dentist and she's started doing a part-time physics degree to to try and do that
1: wow that's a massive career
0: shift yeah it is but she's really enjoying it
1: that's so well that's the only way you could manage to have a career and do undergrad again as well
0: is there
1: anything that you'd like the general public to understand about your job like are there maybe any misconceptions out there or sort of like misrepresentations in the media anything like that 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 you would like people to understand or know more about
0: yeah, I think the biggest one we already talked about and it's this idea of the sole genius that pushes forward the frontiers of science. That isn't how it works. It <laughs> um, might be one or two now and then, but for most for the most part scientists work together in teams and they build on each other's ideas and build on each other's questions. And so I I just I think this is such an important issue because it plays into why people feel like they can't understand or engage with science and i think in today's world where you know there are viruses and climate change and there are all these things that threaten our very way of life to understand them and overcome them everybody needs to understand some science and if they think that science can only be done and understood by these soul geniuses, then nobody is going to engage. I I, don't, I wouldn't even want to work in science if I think only soul geniuses can do it because I don't think I'm a soul genius. And so I just hope that by listening to your podcast and people reading about science and learning more about how scientists work, they start to understand that it's just about, I might have a little idea here. I talk to 10 people. It becomes a medium idea. I work on it for a little bit more and it becomes a really cool idea. And then I write some results and then other people pick it up and then build on it a little bit more. It's fundamentally people asking questions because they're interested and trying to find out a little bit more and a little bit more. Just like what we do in everyday life. You know, you meet a new person and you're like, huh, I wonder if they like this. And then you ask them or you try to do it with them and you find out a little bit more about them or um, and any question really you ask in everyday life. That's all scientists are doing, just asking questions and finding little bits of answers here and there.
1: I think that's a beautiful analogy because some of the problems that we are facing as a society are so huge and we do really need to collaborate, not just as scientists, but we need all sorts of people from all sorts of fields to be able to come together and give each, space, each other space to listen and learn and talk and bit by bit we'll like put all these little puzzle pieces together. And come up with hopefully solutions.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it starts with not thinking that science is a special or different uh, where it is normal people who like solving puzzles.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's a really, really important thing. And yeah, hopefully we can communicate that to some more to some people. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up?
0: What, oh, one cool part of my job that I didn't get to talk about is not core to my job, but something I'm able to do because of the flexibility of being a researcher. I actually am the co-director of this uh, summer school for undergraduate students in Africa, and it's called PACEA, a Pan-African School for Emerging Astronomers. We run every two years and uh, about 60 students attend every every time. Uh, They're undergraduate science and STEM engineering, math students. It's a really cool program, so I want to give a shout out to that. And if people are interested in finding out more about it, maybe we can leave a link to our Twitter account or our website. Definitely, that sounds
1: that sounds so cool. Can Jenna share a little bit about how this school came to be?
0: Yeah, when I started my PhD, yeah, when I started my PhD, there were some people trying to start this summer school thing, and they were asking around for volunteers to join a team. And so me and three other astronomers at the University of Toronto decided to get together, create a one-week summer school for African students. And then, yeah, been doing that ever since. This whole thing started not because we wanted to run a summer school in Africa, but because one of the people that started it, um, they went to a conference in China, I believe it was, and they met a Nigerian astronomer who were really excited about getting more people into astronomy in Nigeria, and they reached out and decided to start a collaboration. That's, that's so
1: cool. What kind of activities do you do with the students? Oh, And how old are the students?
0: Yeah, so the students are probably in their 20s, so they're in undergrad, Yeah, maybe 19 to 25 or older if, if they've had a break before their undergrad. So the, because these students aren't astronomers, The ones that attend are students that are interested in maybe doing astronomy, but maybe there aren't any courses for them to find out what astronomy is about. So all they know is that it's this cool thing where they study the universe. Um, So they come to the summer school to find out what exactly it is, learn more about the different areas of astronomy, from um, solar system to stars, galaxies, and cosmology. And very, very importantly, um, as as we've been actually saying uh, this whole time we've been chatting, doing science is is about asking your own questions and doing your own investigation and feeling confident in veering into the unknown. That's just part of the process of science. And so at the summer school, we actually have our main activity last over two days. We show the students a bunch of pictures of Mars rovers and star clusters and galaxies and galaxy clusters, um, the moon and the sun. And then they ask their own questions. Any question is okay. And then they form groups of about four, pick a question together and then answer it over two days without just looking it up on Google. And they, they have a lot of fun. They start answering, get really excited. And then for sure, at some point in those two days, they get frustrated, leave the room and be like, I give up. And then they'd come back together because usually the biggest frustration occurs right before a breakthrough. And then they're like, oh my God, this is so cool. I think we're getting somewhere. And eventually at the end of two days, they always learn a lot about that question.
1: It also sounds like they learn a huge amount about the scientific process as well, because that sounds like a, any kind of scientific investigation, but in a teeny tiny nutshell.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we get quotes from the students to help us tell the world about our program and one of my favorite quotes from the very first year that we ran the summer school is I didn't know I could ask my own questions and then answer my own questions I feel like I might be able to be a scientist and I heard that and I was like oh mg this is the best <laughs>
1: I feel like that encapsulates so much of what we've talked about. Like, that's that's so cool.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you really like it too. Yeah.
1: Okay. So we have got a shout out for Paisia, your awesome astronomy school. Have you got any other shout outs you'd like to do? Anyone who's doing it particularly, like, challenging, like 2020 is a pretty tough year. Is there anyone you'd like to give a virtual high five to?
0: Oh, I can give virtual high fives to people? Yeah, go nuts. Oh, okay. Um. I would like to give a virtual high five. Uh, to two of my best friends from my PhD, One is Steven Jansen, So he's the one that helped me through all the crazy mystery code and computer stuff. And uh, my other best friend from my PhD, which is Heidi White, and she is – you go to her with any problem and she always helps you talk through it and help you come up with your own solution and figure out what to do and then feel like everything is okay. So they're like two people I would like to say hi to.
1: That is – that's so awesome. They sound like great people to have done your PhD with.
0: Yes, I got really lucky. But okay – I guess I can say I got really lucky but I bet that just you know every single human being is awesome you just gotta get to know them a little bit and those two are my human beings from from my PhD
1: that's so wonderful thank you so much for sharing and with that I think we might have to wrap it up so thank you so much for coming on the show it's been fantastic talking to you
0: yeah it's been really really fun
1: If you like this podcast, you're a little legend and you should check out our website at avidresearch.com.au and sign up to our amazing email newsletter. No spam, only email updates and maybe some exclusive content sometime. Follow us on social media to ask us questions or just to dob in people for interviews.